You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. It's time for radiotherapy. I'm Panel Beater, um, and I'll be herding the cats for the next hour in lieu of Dr Autonomy, who's um, otherwise occupied. Some families bond over board game nights, some over movie nights. Autonomy family, I gather, is bonding over gastro. Um, <laughs> we, we hope they're all doing very well. And we're also um, short of Miss Medic and Lolly Doc, who are otherwise occupied on a long weekend. But I'm not alone. Oh, first of all, big thanks to uh, the Marinara and the team talking all things wet and salty. Particularly keen to hear all they had to say about the whales that are in the bay. That's fabulous news. If you caught any of that footage on YouTube of the whales frolicking down by Frankston, it was um, a delight to see. I'm not alone in the studio. Very happy to say that I'm uh, here with uh, Rainbow Doc and Dr Malice. Good morning, radiotherapists. Good morning to you. Hello. Panel beater? Panel beater. Oh, that's the first yeah, I think I've heard that right. this being the panel and me being the beater. Yeah, <laughs> what a rhythmic like intro, yes. <laughs> um, hey, guys, good to see you. You well? Pretty good for this weather, yes. Chilly. Chilly, a bit south of Peru. Winter, yeah. <laughs> it's bright, though. It's sunny. Yes. Yeah, yeah it's, it's sunny. nice. It's fresh. Yes. It's fresh. And the Queen's birthday weekend, extra day, it always makes a big, bigger smile. Yeah. It does. Hey, um, what do you got ahead of us uh, later on in the show, um, Malice? Well, I think your intro was who let the uh, or hurting the cats. Yeah. In fact, we've got a slightly different tone, and I was wondering whether we would have a bit of a bark actually with that intro because we're going to sort of ask who let the dogs out. But uh, we'll come to that. I'm but concerned about there being cats in here somewhere. Yes. Actually, all oh, right, yeah, it could get a bit feisty. <laughs> uh, but to intro, which is a, a, a rare role for a, a presenter to actually be introducing his own segment, mm. for later on, uh, this will be after an, a brilliant segue, actually, to uh, PTSD and what's happening in the mental health profession, not only with uh, service dogs, but also with our own profession, the mental health profession. It's reviewing and renewing the whole outlook on what trauma is and post-traumatic stress right. and now complex post-traumatic stress. So if it wasn't complex up till now, it really will be soon. And interesting that you have been to a conference and come back and enthusiastic about that. And I've also been to a seminar just a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about exactly the same topic. Oh, what was your um, seminar? It was organised by the Anxiety Recovery Centre. Right. And talking about PTSD, yes. talking about complex trauma oh, as yes. well, and talking about trauma-informed care. So I'll have some things to say about that too. Oh, this is... Oh. The, the star, it's, stars are aligned today. Exactly, <laughs> cats and dogs. And talking of dogs... At that seminar, I met um, two guests. I brought in two guests today. One was not enough. And between them, they have six legs. Right. And that's not three and three. No, that's not three and three. <laughs> so um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Melanie. Hi, everyone. And Paddington. Paddington. Woof, Paddington, woof, woof, woof. woof. I'll, um, I'll speak for Paddington. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there's a lot to look forward to there. Thanks, guys. Um, look, before we get to all that uh, richness and juicy talk, uh, we'll be back right in a moment with some catch-up. 
Well, here we go, guys. So, you were telling us, you were introducing us to Melanie, uh, Lolly Dog, uh, Rainbow Dog. <laughs> <laughs> so many dogs. So many dogs. Melanie Scott was at this seminar organised by the Anxiety Recovery Centre. And Melanie was there with Dog Paddington. Melanie used to be uh, part of Victorian Police. And um, as a result of her experience at the Victoria Police, is no longer working and is now training dogs to be service dogs for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. Hello, Melanie, again. Hi, how are you? Um, can you tell us something about your experience working that led to your, your uh, position now as a trainer of dogs for people with PTSD? That's a very big question. Uh, do you mean like trauma-related? Yeah. 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 Um, so I was threatened to be stabbed with a heroin and blood-filled syringe while on duty with um, three officers that were unable to help me and I was unarmed at that time because I couldn't reach for my um, weapons because I got caught on my um, jacket. So that was sort of like what started it and then it sort of just spiralled with several other incidents after that. But I didn't really know what was going on. And then I ended up finishing work and then I went back um, uh, to try and do some study and stuff and then it ended up, like many people, with trauma with a uh, chronic pain condition. And that led me to um, think, what am I going to do with my life? And my best friend was my dog at the time, Maxie. She was my best mate and helped me through a lot of um, the trauma that I was trying to process through um, what had happened in Victoria Police and I subsequently left and just had a lot of time with her and then I decided to get into dog training and I really wanted a PTSD service dog because I saw one on TV and they weren't in Australia and I waited for 10 years and then I thought I'm just going to learn how to do this myself and I did um, a dog training course through National Dog Trainers Federation and learnt um, some skills um, and put into practice what I've learnt um, along the way with PTSD and put that combined with dog training and advice from overseas into training service dogs so like interrupting anxiety attacks and nightmares and other really in, um, intense uh, feelings that you have when you're suffering PTSD um, and using the dogs to then calm you. So how, how does that work? Because, you know, I'm a dog person and I've got two dogs and I know that if I'm feeling a bit bit crap, that, that you know, I like to have my dogs around me. But how did Maxie help you in your situation? And, and, and what what did Maxie do and what, do, do your other, what have your other dogs done? Well, um, Maxie was mainly... She would always notice when I was in a in a bad mood or feeling really down, and she'd become like extra clingy and um, like yeah, wouldn't leave you alone, and was like a very needy sort of dog. Um, but she wasn't a very social dog, so I couldn't really take her out to many places and that sort of thing because she was too um, like she didn't like other dogs and kids and like that sort of thing. She's very protective of me which is not what you want for a service dog. So I wanted something uh, that I could take to more places um, to allow me to get out of the house more because I became very 
um, housebound. So that's what I want in a in a dog. Like the traits of Maxie's loyalty and loving and affection, basically. Like it, it's what kept me going through all those really really hard years. If I heard you right, you were saying there was some kind of. Um, um uh, problem's probably not the right word, but some kind of challenge with having a dog who was so protective of you as a service dog. Could you just talk about that a bit more? Uh, um, she wasn't an actual service dog. I used mm. to just have... Um, so Paddington, now that I've got, he um, isn't protective, which is not a trait that you want in a in a service dog. So he is almost the exact opposite to Maxie. Um, so... In terms of his personality and that sort of thing, um, they're they're very very different dogs. But it was sort of that I wanted, like I knew that I couldn't have um, Maxie as a service dog because she was too protective and and wasn't um, would not be suitable for that sort of role. So I had to, when she passed away, then I looked at getting another getting another dog. <laughs> What would that, from somebody from the outside looking in at the relationship between a person and their service dog or a person and their pet, what, in that regard, the protectiveness, what would look different? Um, I think it would be that they, like for, um, in in regards to like protectiveness, she would always want to be uh, patted and be the centre of attention. She wouldn't want other people to approach me. Um... And, you know, she would not want other dogs to be patted and, you know, she would always want to be, like, controlling the situation. So uh, she was very, like, militaristic in that (laughs) sense. Um, And Paddington isn't really like that at all. So um, for a normal person, like, being a protective dog, like, a lot of people really want that. But in the service dog um, field, you don't really want a dog that's protective of you because it can become... Um, potentially dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, because you've got people approaching you all the time and that sort of thing. So you want a dog that is loyal but not um, with the aggression. Um, so there is a definitely a difference, so, yeah. So at the moment, Paddington is yep. under the desk. Yes, he is. And it was remarked upon when you came in that we were in the kitchen making a cup of tea yep. and Paddington went into that room and immediately went under the table. Yes. Yeah? Yep. So what's that about? So that, um, for me, it's like keeping him out of the way. So he automatically goes under the table and chairs um, in, like, cafes and restaurants and when you're on public transport and that sort of stuff to keep out of the way because otherwise people trip over him or um, he can get in the way if there's, like, you know, like waitresses and stuff like that going by or someone can tread on his tail. So being under the table keeps him out of the way. So he'll automatically go under there when we go into, like, if there's, like, a table provided in a room or something and I'm talking to someone, he will go under the table automatically. Um, so in what situation would he come out from under the table or would you get him out from and ask him to come oh, out from Oh, I can ask him to table? come out from under the table, yeah. And, and what sort of situations does he does he help you with? Um, like, he helps in general terms um so he reduces the hypervigilance so like the looking around for dangers and that all the time so i'm more focused on what paddington's doing and his welfare than i am worried about like any sort of potential threats okay so your hypervigilance not, yes not paddington yeah so yeah. i'm more worried about um i'm normally more worried about what i'm doing and then um my attention is more focused to him so it's sort of like a constant grounding technique mm. um 
and also if you're having a, if you have a flashback um, because he's attached to me on the lead then I, I just I have a tendency to run um, or it'll go the opposite way or fight when I'm um, triggered so um, he will because you, when you normally have just got yourself you can just like run out of a room but when you've got a dog it's a lot a lot harder to try and negotiate two people you know it's like a dog and a and a person like two of you to leave a room um so that can avoid potentially dangerous situations which i've ended up in the past and if there's any sort of confrontation paddington doesn't like that he wants to like completely remove himself from the situation immediately so he's not a confrontational dog he'll his instinct is to want to run away which is what i've also reinforced because as a police officer you're taught to run towards danger and that's what your instinct is instincts always telling you whereas um when i've got him i know that i can't engage in any sort of activity that is confrontational um so i need to leave the situation and that avoids a lot of problems um that a lot of us have with um anger management so you're you're um you're trained to fight not fly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah and this sort of stops that and shuts shuts it down um, significantly faster than it would. So there's like a lot less arguing. There's no intervening in um, physical altercations. Um, there's none of that sort of thing that occurs when he's around. When I met you, Melanie, um, you talked about your experience in a supermarket. And yep. I wonder if you could share that with us right now, what the, the, the kind of experience or the sort of experiences that you have had in the past and would have now with Paddington with you? Yeah, so in the past it was um, more that you would have a couple of things to get and you like get in and get out and you don't want to be spending any unnecessary time in the supermarket. It's a scary place. You're always looking around um, like a place that is normally a benign environment for everyone else. Like you just constantly scanning, looking for you know, any sort of potential threat, you're always assessing every single person. Um, it's uh, the queues, like to queue up for any groceries or anything is absolutely terrifying because I had having any, anyone front and back of me. Um, and I pretty much, I would struggle to get through putting a basket of um, groceries through the checkout because I would just freak out and I would pretty much just drop drop the basket and just run out of the supermarket just because I just couldn't um, I just couldn't take it any longer even though I had like three or four things in there I would just drop the basket and I would just like run out of the supermarket and that used to happen all the time with him now I'm more focused on what he's doing and his training and you know you get a trolley and you sort of take your time um, and you're more focused on him and what you're doing rather than constantly assessing everyone. So you're more focused on the training aspect. And then if you do get too overwhelmed, then he can like lick your hand or um, put his hand, put his head on your um, arm or something like that. To He's trained to do you. that if you're overwhelmed. He's yeah. trained to respond to that. Yes, yeah. yeah. So if you're overwhelmed, there's different techniques that you can use, like a pouring action that they can do um, or a licking. They can lick your palm or your face. Um, 
or if you're in a really um, agitated state um, or in the middle of a really extreme flashback, they can be trained to jump up on you to sort of um, snap your attention back to the present. Um, so there's different techniques that you can use and it also depends on the person um, and what the situation is. Like, So the more extreme the situation, the more extreme the reaction will be from the dog. So, Melanie, what I'm gathering, this is an extraordinary relationship uh, in contrast to your previous dog. <clears throat> this is really, I mean, in, in technical terms, it's got all the therapeutic qualities um, rather than a pet quality. And the question would be, how do you match this sort of intimate uh, responsiveness that you've achieved to someone who would come to you with their own, say, PTSD, with their own home dog, their pet dog. Is that the, the dog you train up or do you advise them to get a specialist, um, like a, a animal-assisted therapy sort of dog? Um, it depends on the person and the dog. Mm -hmm. um, if the dog's quite well-behaved and um, quite... Uh, well adjusted and stuff you can look at training them for a service role and if the dog's like um, not too old and has got no medical um, issues and stuff like that um, but it depends on yeah, the person and the dog and also if you introduce another dog into that environment it would also depend on um, the relationship between those two dogs then that as well but you can like some people just want a dog that can perform these sort of roles but at home because you get a lot of attention and that sort of thing if you take a service dog out and a lot of people don't want that which is fair enough and some people just want someone like a dog that they can have at home that will respond to them when they're in, under distress or having nightmares and that sort of thing and that can be enough for a lot of people that they want um, more of that sort of role at home which you can train the other dogs because they are more sensitive like Dr. Rainbow was saying that they are more sensitive to your needs as it is so you can actually harness the ability of that relationship that you've got with the dog already. You're with um, Rainbow Doc, Dr. Malice and Panel Beater and we're talking on Triple R radiotherapy and we're talking with our special guest uh, Melanie Scott. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Melanie Scott trains dogs, service dogs, to assist people who have experienced PTSD. And from what you're saying, Melanie, it's it's really changed your quality of life. The improvement in your quality of life, I'm imagining, from having a service dog with you is phenomenal. How come we don't see many of these dogs around um yeah he has drastically changed my life um i'm able to leave the house more and interact with people more and um things that I, i'm able to do like outdoor activities that i wasn't able to do before because i was just paralyzed by fear and anxiety pretty much so i'm able to go out into public more and that sort of thing um i think that Overseas, they've had these dogs for 20, 30 years plus, um, and it's only now that they're starting to be um, acknowledged and recognised here in Australia. And it's not just with PTSD, it's with other um, problems as well um, that they're able to assist with. But it's just that it was really only um, isolated to um, dogs for the blind that 
is where Australia was at for a very long time and then it sort of expanded into people with mobility issues and now it's expanding into people with mental health issues and um, like certain behavioural um, issues that the dogs can assist with and like learning difficulties and all sorts of things that the dogs are able to assist with that they weren't able you know that they were able to do before but no one here really recognized their potential and that's what we're starting to see now is a growth in this industry so can you take paddington anywhere you want i uh, yeah i can uh, provided that he is well behaved um so i can be asked to leave a venue if he misbehaves and um i don't take him to I don't think you're allowed into uh, areas of quarantine or um, so the zoo like there's areas of the zoo and that sort of stuff um, and also surgical environments so um, if you were under um, if you had to go into surgery you wouldn't be able to take your dog into the operating theatre and that sort of stuff don't mean to be flipping at all but would you be allowed in Melbourne's cat cafe <laughs> um, panel beater you probably would um but, yeah, I'm not really sure that you'd really want to um, upset all of the <laughs> all of the felines <laughs> to that degree. Um, but, no, uh, we haven't actually visited there, but we have been to the dog cafe. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so that's quite good. And he has, like, his little um, doggy chino and stuff like that. Quite that's enjoy. the one that over is... near Flagstaff, is that right? No, it's the one that's on Johnson Street. Okay. Yeah, so uh, it's a doggy cafe, yep. Did he? Did he eat it? Sorry, did he? I have to ask this question. Did he eat it delicately? Because I once, you know, to satisfy my kids, took the dog to the to a, one of those dog cafe things, and the dog's there, and you know, the kids are all excited about this, and the dog gets a muffin or something, a doggy muffin, and just went woof, and it was gone, and that was the end. <laughs> was the end yeah. Oh no, he had a pretty big cup. But he didn't look up for the sec- from the moment that it was put down to the moment it was finished. He didn't take a breath. It was just like he just kept going and going and going. And um, yeah, he really, really enjoyed it. But there was no, like, it's like the rest of the world didn't exist while that doggy chino was on the ground there. <laughs> now I also noticed that Paddington's quite a fashion uh, uh, trendsetter, and he's got a jacket on. But on the jacket, he's got a little sign, please do not pat me. Now, is this his personal uh, or your relationship with him that you decided on this? Or is this a, a legal requirement or a courtesy for Paddington not to be bothered outside? How does that work that you've got this sign on his jacket? Uh, well, it's during the early stages of training and that sort of thing like you want to encourage people to come up and you know introduce themselves to you and that so when they're really young but when they start getting into full-on training you want them to be able to concentrate on you so it's more of a distraction avoider and that also um leads into like people making you know like kissy noises at them or barking at your dog or um, you know, making noises to try and distract the dog in any way um, because at the end of the day, like, that dog's there to assist you um, and you don't want that dog to then become really distracted and you want their attention on you. That You don't want them to be, like, eliciting attention from other people and that as well. Um, so, like, you can ask to pat a dog but, you know, 
like most often than not, you know, it'll be, oh, no, sorry, he's working and that sort of thing because they need to be able to focus their attention. Now, just on that issue that he's actually on a job, he's working, and we wouldn't actually go and pat a a mate who's working just because he's a, you know, when he's on duty, he's a different sort of relationship. (laughs) Now, uh, is he, um, I don't know how to put this, but is he a licensed worker or uh, unlicensed or probationer or L-plated learner or what sort of a learner is he? Um, He's probably working on a contract basis. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Freelancing. Um, No, he's he's not, like, licensed per se, but, like, we do have a pass for him to go on public transport, which um, helps if you get pulled over, like, you know, if the... um, if you get asked about tickets and that sort of stuff, but he doesn't, like, technically require that because it's under federal law. Um, So there's more and more people that are training their own dogs to become... Uh, looks like say self-training um so i do offer assistance with those sort of things as well um but there isn't like you're going under federal legislation so it's under the disability discrimination act 1992 um yeah so that's how it um all rolls in so you're not able to be discriminated discriminated against because of that and also these service dogs um, the law has changed now, so they're recognised the same as a guide dog. Oh, so because Paddington, for anyone who doesn't know what he looks like, he's like a German Shepherd cross, um, we're not really sure what dog, and he doesn't look he's like... beautiful. He doesn't he's look like your typical, your typical uh, Labrador. So we often get a lot of questions and like sometimes we do get problems about because he doesn't have the appearance of a Labrador, that therefore he is unable to be a service dog. But any dog, like I was saying, you know, with the temperament and medical clearance and that sort of thing can be a service dog. So you've got, like, anything from little terriers right up to, in some cases, for, like, mobility issues and that sort of thing. People have got Great Danes and that that can help them out of chairs and that sort of thing. So... There are uh, quite a lot of little tiny dogs as well, so they don't just have to be a Labrador um, to be able to fulfil these sort of duties. But, yeah, we do get often asked about, um, because he doesn't look like a um, typical um, service dog. Now, we've asked permission both from Paddington and yourself for a photo afterwards, and if it's all right, we'll perhaps put it on our website... Uh, and just also, I mean, if people, because this is like a learning curve for all of us, I think, and as a community, we should be mindful of the incredible benefit, as you've described, for your own well-being, virtually at one stage being housebound, and now, uh, thanks to this input and the relationship, uh, the freedom to move about in the in the big world. If there are people who are in your position, how, how do they contact you? Do they first buy a dog or do they first contact you or what happens? Um, I would say if you're looking at a service dog role specifically, you'd be best to contact myself or a trainer to help you identify a dog with that potential because a lot of people just go on their heart. Yeah. Um, so if you, give, if you went to a litter of pups or at the shelter... You, you might be drawn to a particular dog, um, but that might not be the dog that has the best potential for that. So it'd be best to contact me at Melanie Scott Canine Training and I can help you identify a dog. 
and in saying that too like not every dog that starts off training can finish training so um because it's a very long process it's like two years and if you're doing it through um like through the charity that I run, it can cost like twenty to thirty thousand dollars, and that's how much it costs for a guide dog and an assistance dog of any level because it takes two years of intense training, and that's like vet and medical and all that sort of stuff. And not all the dogs make the cut. So even though you can put a lot of work in, at the end of the day, you could end up with a very highly trained dog that can perform these skills at home, which can still be extremely helpful, but. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. It's a long, pr- it's a long process. But to give yourself the best chance, it's best to talk to someone who knows, wh- uh, you know, what they're doing, and to get the advice rather than waiting until it's mm. too late, yeah. um, because then the problems have gotten significantly worse. Or you may um, choose a dog that's um, extremely timid or has um, medical issues that you. Um, are unaware of and that sort of thing. So it's always important to check all those things out if you're considering that sort of thing. So if I've understood correctly, that's quite different to the way people uh, end up in a relationship with, uh, say, a seeing eye dog. So you don't so much select the dog as go to somewhere where there is a uh, dogs available or pre-prepared. Is that is he saying the model is different there? You can go and choose a dog, then put it into training and hopefully it turns out to be an appropriate yeah, that's what they can do for a lot of the dogs because we don't have the breeding program right. that um, like seeing eye dogs and guide dogs and that sort of thing and um, assistance dogs have. They, they have access to like an international type breeding program and national breeding programs and are able to access like certain breeders that they have and all those sort of connections that like a normal person wouldn't be able to um, like usually tap into that sort of thing. Um, unless they personally knew someone that had access to that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but you can use shelter dogs and that sort of thing overseas. There's been a lot of shelter dogs that have been used with vet, like with veterans right. over in um, America and Canada, and there are specific programs. <coughs> and also um, there's uh, people in prisons that have been able to train um, some of these dogs that have been like, rehomed and um, also have helped raise pups and that sort of thing. So it it really varies. Um, you don't need to have it specifically bred for it, but um, yeah, like when you've got that access to the program, it is really good. But yeah, you can use shelter dogs. And I'm guessing that, you know, seeing eye dogs, the organisations have been established for many years and mm. there's a lot of money going into those organisations to support people who may not have income and and need one of those dogs. Whereas what you're talking about here is, in a way, very little recognition of the benefits of having dogs. And, you know, you've set up a charity to try and change that, I guess. Uh, Yes, we have a charity called Canines for Valor, and it's about raising awareness of of, um, post-traumatic stress in first responders. And I set it up because there was just a lack of help and assistance for like ex-police and ambulance, fire, military, and no one seemed to work together and there wasn't enough research and all that sort of thing. And I really wanted a program that we could access these dogs and there just wasn't really anything available at that time. So that's why we do training for these dogs. Um, but yeah, the... Uh, because it is so new, it is difficult to 
get attention and training and um, the media and that sort of thing that you need um, to, to try and get these programs because they're extremely expensive dogs um, to send from start to finish and involve such a, a large amount of training. Thank you, Melanie. Thank you so much for coming in and telling us all about that and to Paddington for so dutifully sitting under the desk here. And um, all the best with that. And we will put details up on the website. Yeah, Great. Yep, exactly. Excellent. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot, Melody. And Paddington. Three. Triple. This is Panel Beater. I'm joined by Lolly Doc and Dr. Malice, and we've just been speaking with Melanie Scott and Paddington. Dr. Malice, I believe you're going to bring some trauma into the studio. Well, I, th- I think we've got trauma in the studio. It's how we're going to de-traumatise the trauma. As with Paddington, <clears throat> the challenge nowadays is really, since the last 20 or 30 years, we've got an idea of how ubiquitous trauma actually is. The challenge for all of us is to really come to some common understanding of how we intervene um, and what we can expect from the intervention and become more specific and precise. And I must say as a segue before going to my segment, um, I've also had my own experience with animal-assisted therapy, which was with an experience called horse, horse whispering. And this was in the States about four or five years ago. And it really changed my whole outlook on communications that occur between human and animal. And it's now a mainstream psychiatric topic. And indeed, in Australasian Psychiatry, the one of the journals from our Australian New Zealand College, the April 2018 edition actually has a major article on psychotherapy. But the title, and listen to the title... Who Let the Dogs Out? Therapy Dogs in Clinical Practice. So what we've just heard from Melanie is actually now mainstream thinking. As Melanie mentioned, overseas it's been part of the way of developing armed services, first responder services and therapies for decades. But we're finally uh, on the international stage. And I just wish Melanie and Paddington all the best in promoting and pioneering this incredible venture. Now, the reason that this is so timely is that the last 20 or 30 years, and just to put the whole trauma field in context, the culture that we live in has radically changed. And whenever culture changes radically, mental health needs to respond. And historically, this goes back to the First World War, Second World War, Vietnam War, where major trauma has accelerated the need for mental health and general health professionals to respond to what trauma does. And the most recent history from 1980 was the introduction in psychiatry of the term PTSD. That occurred in 1980. Now, since the 1990s, when all the technology of fancy brain scans and neuroscience has become more and more advanced and refined, We now have a very deep, deep understanding after 20 years on what trauma does to the brain. And this has initially been done with Vietnam veterans, later Afghan veterans. And then we realise that it's not only in military trauma, but also domestic trauma. 
and in uh, civilian life or professional civilian life with first-line responders like Melanie herself in police, fire, ambulance, emergency service workers and uh, emergency service workers in hospitals, in ER departments. What is now generally understood is that the brain actually changes in trauma. Now, we're no longer talking about an event that happened and, you know, the old cliche was forget about it and move on and life's for living and all that. We now know that the imprint of that event actually changes not only the brain but the whole body. The reason we know that is because now we talk about the brain-gut axis and we've always known of hormones that get triggered, the stress hormones, the immediate adrenaline, the slower cortisols, and they actually circulate throughout the whole body. And so we've got two possible outcomes for trauma survivors. One is they're left in, as Melanie described, her own state in this hypervigilant, overactive nervous system. Or to avoid that, the other extreme is the total withdrawal from potential triggers, which could be totally paralyzing and life demoting. Now, in this context, the question happens to be, what is the responsibility of my profession? Mine being in the mental health field. So what is it that nurses um, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, GPs, um, family therapists and all sorts of psychotherapists need to know in terms of what are these changes all about. And this is where the phrase, if you haven't heard it, it's going to be around for a long time called TIC, the acronym for Trauma Informed Care. That's what the world needs, another acronym. Another TIC. <laughs> Now, why I'm so excited is because finally, from 2017, last year, our college conference was in Adelaide, and from A to A, from Adelaide to Auckland, <laughs> last month in May, we had it in Auckland, and from 2017, where there's virtually no mention of any ticks, in 2018, ticks were everywhere. Tick was hurrah, hurrah. Hurrah, hurrah. It <laughs> yes, is. hurrah. It really, I was so, so excited. Now, the reason, uh, I, I'll just mention the factual basis, there was a pre-conference workshop uh, actually titled Perspectives on Tick. So it means that no longer do, do we have one view of what trauma-informed care is, there are multiple views, which is a sign of development. Later in the body of the conference, does training change practice on the introduction of trauma-informed care training for clinicians and managers? Now, the real exciting here thing is when you talk about managers, you're talking money, meaning that managers will get funded only if they introduce ticks. Because as clinicians, we've been raving on about ticks for years. And I mean, that's very interesting, but who cares? But once managers start to talk about tick, it's dollars. So departments are now going to be soon funded on the amount of ticks they provide, uh, trauma-informed care services, that is, not the little bugs, in their service. And finally, the PS de la Resistance. This is when our college president, uh, Dr. Kim Jenkins, actually delivers a talk. And one of the slides is for 2018. 
the planned idea of a position statement from the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Psychiatrists on tick. Now, if anyone's worked in organisations, you know that things take their own sweet time and glaciers are speedsters compared to what committees can do on organisations. So, the idea that four separate presentations in one year from zero at Adelaide to four major presentations in Auckland, this bodes well, I think, for Australian and New Zealand mental health services. So having said that, the question is, what is tick? Clearly, the question, if we're talking about trauma-informed care, by definition, what we were trained, and certainly back in the 80s and 90s, the teachings I gave to students, was trauma-uninformed care. We didn't actually know about trauma. We knew about PTSD, but not really about trauma. So can you just make a distinction for us? Um, I would default sort of like almost treat them as um, synonyms, stress and trauma. And I know they're not the same, but can you make a, a, a blunt distinction? Well, it was a linguistic distinction. That is that in the before pre, let's say 1990s is the watershed. And since then, things have really snowballed. But prior to that, trauma is one of those things, yeah, I had a traumatised war experience, but Second World War veterans had no services that recognised their nightmares, didn't recognise their flashbacks, didn't recognise the relationship difficulties that they had when they came back. And, of course, alcohol and drugs was just thought to be part of culture, not that this was a high-risk group. That changed with the Vietnam War in 1980 because the enormity, the quantity and qualitative difference of these servicemen was so different from the rest of culture that recognised post-traumatic stress, but still not trauma itself. Mm -hmm. It was just that afterwards, you all right, you had nightmares and that's bad, so we'll try to do something. By the 1990s, domestic violence, child abuse and ongoing chronic workplace, say severe bullying or abuse, was starting to be thought about in not just, well, that's just, you know, bad luck that you've got that sort of work setting. It was starting to be thought about as having PTSD, as Melanie actually said. If you get confronted by a person who's threatening your life with a needle and you are helpless and then your colleagues for whatever reason are unable to come to your assistance your body changes in that instant and it does not necessarily recover once the needle is taken away that is now called a traumatic experience can I, can I also add that, um, Dr Malice, that we need to also include here complex trauma because there's an estimated one in four adults in this country that um, have the experience of, of, of some form of complex trauma where the symptoms are kind of the same but the origin is different. So it's early childhood. It needn't be one specific event. It tends to be, it's people related. It's from people. It's from neglect. It's from abuse. Sometimes it's from events that we don't see as traumatic events, but it's a continuous experience that leads to the same kinds of symptoms of 
low self-esteem, relationship difficulties, substance difficulties, um, physical and mental health problems. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And Malice is taking us through the ticks and a bit of trauma-informed care. care. If you want to get it complex, you could go ticket, ticket. because that's trauma-informed care, intervention, as with Paddington, and therapy to boot. So that's ticket, but let's stay <laughs> with tick. Now, we were just talking during the break about the background to this, and if anyone really is deeply serious about following it up, the key go-to person and book would be Basil van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, published 2014. And Basil has been around for onks and yinks and forever. And he actually wrote this paper of Body Keeps the Score 20 years before his book in 1994. And he was the pioneer and remains one of the buzzword people. Now, to come back to this fascinating and thrilling development, which is the adding C in front of PTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, since 1980, can you imagine for 30 years we've been stuck on one acronym, PTSD? It's really time for an update. And C is the perfect letter before it, complex PTSD. And the reason for this is, and I'll substantiate it, we think that one of the two Bibles that we use in mental health, one being DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of uh, Mental Conditions, the other, which is less talked about, ICD, International Classification of Diseases. Now, this year is thrilling because the 2018 edition is coming out, ICD-11. And guess what we think is, you know, we've had previews, guess what we think is in it? A distinction between PTSD that's been around for 30 years and CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And as Dr. Rainbow mentioned, it has got a constellation that is refiguring, reconfiguring the way we understand and think about trauma and subsequent legacies and relationships that it is centered on this complex PTSD a dysregulation of emotions. Now, mental health people did not like talking about dysregulation because it implies there's a relationship going on. Someone's regulating or dysregulating. And yet this is at the heart of Melanie and Paddington's presentation that Melanie is experiencing a re-regulation of her hyper-aroused state when Paddington senses that and either licks or pause and brings her, as she said in the word, groundedness. That is, safety is restored. It's a two-person or two-being relationship that is dysregulated in the sufferer and re-regulated from the dysregulation. That could not be thought about in PTSD because that was just the person was having the event and the experience. Flashback, bad luck, well treated by desensitisation, whatever. This is actually being in the moment. And the fascinating dynamic which we now understand is the neurobiology of panic and flashbacks is actually from the limbic system which is called the mammalian brain. So what's happening is Paddington 
is bringing his mammalian brain to attune to Melanie's mammalian, which goes down to the reptilian, which is the survival brain, which is fight, flight, freeze, faint, or cry. Now, if you've got a regulator like Paddington, Paddington will bring Melanie's regulation from survival instinct in the supermarket back to shopping in the supermarket with a pet. People around won't see that, but if you did MRI scans on Melanie and Paddington at the same time, I would guess you would see the most exquisite synchronization of limbic systems that are re-regulating. <laughs> synchronized from... limbic systems. That should be an oh. Olympic sport. Oh, oh. It, well, in fact, that is what happens in synchronized swimming. That is what, when people dive off from the 10-metre thing, they are synchronised to survive and do these most incredible uh, bodily gestures called acrobatics. Yeah. They, that's what's called synchronised. Mm -hmm. That is precisely what goes... If you and I were to jump off a 10-metre, I think we'd be screaming our heads off. No one would give us a score out of 10 because we, could, we would be in survival reptilian mode. Whereas that's where I think this is where uh, Melanie emphasised Paddington's temperament, that you can't afford to have too much loyalty because then the, the, the pet would come to your rescue. That's not what they're there for. They're there to re-regulate you and to be mindful, just as Melanie's mindful of Paddington, my guess is 10, 10 times back the other way, Paddington's tracking Melanie wherever she's going and knows when to do the pouring, when to do the licking, and if need be, a severe flashback, when to jump on her, not in an attack. It's, hey, Melanie, come back to the supermarket. And that's the re-regulation in complex PTSD. And this is the, the amazing thing. Finally, our college has caught up that we need a position statement on tick. Mm. And so the emphasis now in tick is not just understanding all these fancy scans of the brain, but what we can do, how we can apply it, both in our culture, as with service animals, and also, obviously, in our mental health facilities, in our consulting rooms, and hopefully the culture changes for the better because of that. Can I... Um, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking we're talking around it, but actually... What is it, trauma-informed trauma trauma care? Trauma-informed care means that we train our next generation of practitioners in understanding that trauma disconnects the brain. Can I add five words? Safety, trust, choice, collaboration and empowerment. That's what people need. Nice little summation there. Thank you, Rainbow Doc. Thank you, Dr Malice. And a special thank you to Melanie and Paddington for joining us today. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.
You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne.